Hello and welcome back to another edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast. Joining me today, as usual, my co-host Angus Foote and our number crunchers, Nisha Long and Frank Talbot. So it's two weeks since the last edition and uh, quite a lot has changed since then. We've had two vaccines for the coronavirus show extremely promising results with hints of more to come from a third vaccine, the one being developed in Oxford. And in a way, the world's turned on its head. Optimism is back in the air. The virus is still spreading strongly in a number of parts in the state. So the battle isn't won yet. But it is uh, it is a turning point. And to that end, we're going to have a look at one sector that has healthcare that has benefited from, if you like, from the pandemic and its attempts to fix it with Nisha. And then we'll be coming to Frank to look at one country that hasn't really done very well in the battle against the virus, and that's India. But it is a country that fascinates people, all types of investors, particularly in comparison with China, which we talk about an awful lot here. So let's start with you, Nisha. You've been tracking fund managers who've done very well out of going uh, long in healthcare. What have you found for us now that now that things are actually starting to move quite quickly? Yeah, especially with the um, vaccines promises that are coming out from Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, etc. But I want to go a bit left field here, actually, because the manager I want to mention is a double A rating manager, Finney Cruvilla. Um, it's a US manager from um, Eventide Funds, is the best performer over three years in the pharmaceutical sector, 97% returns in US dollar terms. Um, but he doesn't invest in any of the coronavirus-related biotech stocks at all. Well, he does have Regeneron, but that was ages ago that he um, invested in it before the COVID testing kit that they put out. But just to show you that another side of healthcare, he's still doing very well. He's on top of the sector, but he hasn't gained you know, from the COVID-related stocks. Um, but one thing I need to mention about this fund, it is massive. It's $3 billion in assets, but he focuses on biotech stocks that are in the early stage. Um, so offering promising treatments, um, targeting you know unmet needs, but it's primarily young biotech firms that he looks for and um, targeting. And the only problem that might be for this is that the products aren't actually marketable as yet. So it is just based on promises of delivering. And so maybe, you know, some of the COVID related, which he doesn't invest in, but treatments and therapeutics. So they are quite risky bears. And you might liken them, some of them to the stocks that Neil Woodford used to hold um, in his, you know, very young companies. So it is a risky bet. And he can invest 15% of the portfolio in private firms. I don't think I mentioned his um, fund name. It's Eventide Healthcare and Life Sciences Fund. But he, you know, he can invest in less liquidity, well, liquid area of the market. But not having those Pfizer's, Glaxo, SmithKline's, you know, all those in his fund just shows you that you can be contrarian go against the market, you know, and get the returns um, that you want. Just some of his um, holdings are Karuna Therapeutics, Serapita Therapeutics. Some of these I haven't really heard of. They're quite young um, in psychotherapeutics, for example, so more neurological-based. But what has drawn me to this manager in particular, and that's why I looked at him in the first place, was um, his education background. It is quite out there. It's quite different. So he's a doctor. He graduated from Harvard Medical School. So, you know, one of the best people that could manage a healthcare and life sciences fund. He also has a PhD in chemistry, like me, which is great. Um, also a master's oh, degree. I had to get that. I had to get that in. Um, but he's also got a master's degree in electrical engineering. So it's completely different. Um, and he was also 
working as a clinical fellow in the Women's Hospital and Children's Hospital in Boston. So it's quite different. His well, background. I, I think you mentioned two relevant things there. One was Neil Woodford, because he did invest a lot in these sorts of stocks. And he's, as far as I know, has no type of pharmaceutical chemical background, which just shows, you know, you do say they're risky, but you've got to make your choices. Uh, uh, and the other one, as you say, was his, was his educational background, the fact that he practiced as a doctor. Uh, relevant to Britain is that you know, the vaccine selection has been here has been overseen by Kate Bingham, who again was a, a you know, she did wear a white coat at some stage during her training. Uh, she was at a biotech uh, venture capital firm. And it just shows you really got to know your stuff. I mean, Neil Woodford's selection of stocks appear to be uh, dependent on which companies were in a 15 mile radius of where he was based in Newbury in Oxfordshire. And lo and behold, quite a lot of them fell at the first hurdle. Angus. It's interesting. Two things occurred to me while Nisha was talking. Uh, firstly, these these types of investments, pharmaceutical R and D. I guess you invest in a in a number of these kind of companies, and you only really need one to pay off big time to give you your returns. I guess it would be interesting to dig into that portfolio and see what has driven the returns. Whether it's driven by a very small number of stocks, and then you have a large uh, a long tail that don't really do very much. So that's that's one aspect of it. But the other thing that's interesting to me is just the idea of healthcare generally, where healthcare is in vogue, it's in focus rather, because of COVID. But actually, there's a healthcare story beyond COVID. And it's not unreasonable to assume that what we've all been through and what countries around the world have been through because of COVID will cause a a tilting of policy and of resources towards better healthcare provision, healthcare infrastructure, all of these sort of things. So whether or not you have directly COVID-related healthcare investments, there's a there's a bigger healthcare story out there, isn't there? Which I think is what you're highlighting, Nisha. Yeah, absolutely. Because in his fund as well, um, Kravila's fund, there's a lot of neuroscience um, stocks in there as well. So it's focusing, you know, on impairments in the brain, you know, how, for example, stroke patients, you know, how you can, you know, help them have movement. Um, so it's, it's not just, you know, COVID-related, that one you know, for diseases, it's, you know, as we know, many people aren't getting, um, well, in this country anyway, um, the appointments that they need for cancer-related illnesses. And because COVID, you know, they need the beds for COVID. So, you know, there's quite a lot of appointments being pushed back. But that's the kind of, you know, healthcare people still need to focus on because they're still, you know, well, cancer is still one of the number one killers of people. So we still need that research. We still need those kind of stocks in healthcare and in pharmaceuticals equity sector that can help you know drive the healthcare sector forwards yeah and you can also imagine governments putting research money into these often via universities because you know the cost of developing obviously you've got to have a portfolio of drugs one comes off but even then the cost of, of that versus the cost of healthcare or building new hospitals is 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 pretty cost effective. So yeah, I think it you know there's a lot there's a lot to like here. That it's uh, very promising areas. As Angus says, it's COVID has alerted everybody to it. Governments are short of money, so they'd much rather put money in here than build lots and lots of hospitals. And then it, you know if anything makes the case for active manager selection, uh, you know this is it. People who really know what they're doing. People who've spent time in hospitals have got degrees in it, rather than generalist managers just getting a fancy presentation so very interesting stuff so we're going to sort of 
go over to Frank now because still on the, the sort of COVID theme, India, because it's been spectacularly bad. I happened to glance at the figures the other day. Things are getting a little better, but the whole nation has been racked by this. And, it, you know, you compare and contrast with the way China has handled the virus, got itself back into growth again. And India, often seen by many as the next China, the next giant in the emerging markets to, to challenge the world economic order, has not done so well. So, Frank, what, what have you been looking at? Okay, yeah. So, so this week, as you mentioned, Richard, I've been I've been looking at India. I think people are going pretty tired with the U.S. tech story that certainly had the the wind knocked out of its sails uh, in recent months, um, and China, which while it's still going great guns in terms of performance and flows, is likely to become quite a heated uh, trade. So, uh, believe it or not, India has performed pretty much in step with China during the recovery since markets bottomed in March twenty third. Both are up about 50% in dollar terms uh, since that point. Um, However, the drawdowns were much sharper in Indian equities, uh, about 40% down from their peak versus 20% for for broad Chinese equities, that's the MSCI uh, China and MSCI India indices. So year to date, India is up 4% versus 26% for for China. So the attention has gone to where, where the returns have been for sure. Um, but let me sort of make the case for India, typically seen as a high quality emerging market, of which while it's got its problems with corruption and sometimes liquidity, uh, does have, um, you know, historically, um, you know, diverse stock market. And it's typically traded at a premium to other emerging markets, you know, but that premium has been almost entirely eroded over multiple years of underperformance of its equity market. And uh, I mentioned that broad diversified stock market doesn't have one dominant sector like you'd find in other emerging markets, financials, uh, you know, China or uh, energy in, in Russia, Brazil, and so on. So it doesn't have that dependency on one stock market, and that makes it quite attractive, or one sector of the economy, rather. Uh, Stating the obvious, it's got 1.4 billion people, just a little less than China. It's catching up fast. We all know it's going to be the biggest. Uh, It's got a rapidly growing tech sector, the second largest mobile phone install base in the world after, obviously, China. And uh, we've seen moves this year from Facebook buying a minority stake in, in Geo, the leading mobile platform in the country, which is a subsidiary of Reliance Industries, uh, in order to, to gain access to uh, payment services. It was a $5.7 billion deal. That was India's largest ever FDI. So it's a, it's a big deal. Also, Amazon's brought into the country, again, through Reliance, Reliance dominating here. Um, uh, and it's proven a difficult market for uh foreign companies to, to break into and navigate around the bureaucracy that the country is is famed for. Flows have not been good, though, on the other hand, unlike China. Uh, it's a relatively small sector. For these are direct funds. So there's 15 billion euros invested, and they've had outflows of 3 billion euros year to date. So the attention is is not focused on them. Nevertheless, I still think it's, it's, it's very interesting. So how do we invest there? Who do we go for? Obviously, stands to benefit massively from a vaccine. That goes without saying. Probably won't be able to get the 1.4 billion doses required. But nevertheless, it, it will be a massive pickup should the vaccine be readily available. The first route is a direct play. So this is uh, the first name that sort of really comes out is uh, Elizabeth Soon of Pinebridge. Uh, she's A-rated, uh, runs, uh, among others, the Pinebridge uh, Indian Equity Fund. Portfolio is up 19% year to date versus that 4% that I mentioned uh, in, in, in the opening remarks. Um, 
soon remains one of Asia's most consistent fund managers in terms of outperformance, almost always rated uh, in, in part because of her Asian Smaller Companies Fund. Um, the biggest position in the fund is a 9.6% stake in healthcare stock Divi's Labs, which is up 80% in dollar terms this year. 80%, that's obviously huge. Um, and the next up, the next routine is CTY-rated Sashi Reddy and David Gate. They run uh, Stuart Investors' Indian Subcontinent Fund, uh, along with the group's uh, much larger Asia-Pac Leaders Fund. This portfolio is up 15%, again, in dollar terms year to date, uh, has large positions, again, in healthcare. Uh, it's got uh, Dr. Lau Path Labs, uh, it's a 5% stake, and Dr. Reddy's Laboratories, both of which super hot at the moment, up 38% and 58% respectively uh, year to date. Um, the other way you could access them, if you don't feel brave enough to go for a single strat entirely devoted on the country, is to go through the, the broader Asia Pac X Japan funds or uh, emerging markets funds that have high weightings to India. And, and on the former, so Asia Pac X Japan, doesn't come much bigger than Stuart Investors' uh, Asia Pac Leaders Fund, run by the same duo, David Gate and Sashi Reddy. Stuart rated. They have a massive 40% of that fund in India. Uh, it is nowhere near that in the Asia Pac index, and obviously dominated by China, that index. So they've been overweight, heavily overweight for a long time. It's been a very slow burn in terms of performance for them, mm. but it's finally lifting them up into positive territory. They are performing. On, on both strategies over um, the three-year basis. And um, it's, 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 it's an interesting market. I think if you want to divert attention away from China, then India is certainly something we're hearing more and more from broad emerging managers uh, who, who can choose to invest there and are choosing to invest there. Maybe it's a value play now as opposed to being right. a premium that it used to be. Yeah. I know Terry Smith's Emerging Markets Investment Trust, I know this from painful experience, he thought India was the next big thing, and it's done. The fund's done absolutely nothing for the last three years. So obviously, maybe its time is coming now. Angus, it's interesting. It feels like no time at all since we were talking about whether China should be a separate sleeve in emerging markets, or whether you know China merited a single strategy approach. And how long will it be before we have a similar conversation about India? I think that's an interesting question to uh, to consider. But interested also, you're talking about. Uh, an economy that is more broad-based than many. And, and we come from a world where people have been almost overridingly thinking about themes. You know, you mentioned, Richard, tech. It was, yeah. you know, we've talked about healthcare. People have moved away from thinking in terms of countries, do I invest in country A or country B, to do I invest in theme X or theme Y, and then how it plays out across countries is, is, has become slightly secondary. But maybe maybe there's a, a reversal of that. And uh, Nisha showed me some stats earlier in the week from a Bank of America report showing uh, which areas fund managers around the world were overweight and underweight. And um, it was interesting looking at those stats. Emerging markets were coming back heavily as an area for fund managers to overweight. And there was an FT report also I read this week where they were quoting currency experts at big global banks, actually predominantly in the US, who were saying the dollar could decline by 20% in 2021 uh, on the back of the, the positive vaccine news. Uh, now, that uh, puts emerging markets right back in the frame, doesn't it? I mean, this is time to look for good emerging market managers, isn't it? And it yeah. Uh, either directly into China, India, 
more generally Asia or, or emerging markets, or indeed, you know, you've got uh, US-based companies that are uh, that are just you know expanding sales there massively. So that's why Facebook are there. That's why Amazon are going there. That's why you know you've got the likes of Microsoft and Apple. You know, China is Apple's biggest market. Uh, I suspect India will start to approach that as as uh, as things open up there. You get the impression it's you know if China is difficult to penetrate for Western companies, India can be super difficult to penetrate given the you know the, the morass of of the central government, the state governments. It's uh, it's a tricky place to play. They have an authoritarian government, like just like China, perhaps not as ruthless, but it, it, it's promise. You know, India has been the promised land for almost as long as Sisiwa has been in existence, which is now over twenty years. Maybe it's the time now, Frank. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it does it does sort of flow into the conversation when we talk about China uh, and, and other emerging markets. Um, nevertheless, it is it's certainly attractive. I think if the dollar does weaken, like you mentioned, Angus, then a lot of, lot of markets are priced in dollars, and that's going to take the sheen off returns that you can get elsewhere. So if you're buying a broad emerging market fund, it will be priced in dollars. Uh, if you're buying single country, they're likely to be uh, priced off the back of the, the native currency. So maybe that and sort of one, one reason to, to, to go that way. People are less confident naturally investing in single emerging market strategies outside of China. And to be honest, before this year, they were pretty afraid of investing solely in Chinese uh, funds as well. So perhaps we are at a sea change and we are going to see that, that movement. Just one thing to add, the inescapable topic of ESG, uh, we discussed in our editorial meeting this week, India, you know, obviously governance concerns have been an issue in the past, but the consensus was that in India, you have very polarized governance. You have some companies that very poor governance at one extreme, not much in the middle, and then good companies at the other end. So actually, if you are an ESG player, or if you're thinking in terms of you know, social and governance criteria, then opportunity for returns based on that disparity is far greater. Yeah, I think that I think that's a misnomer that all emerging markets are somehow corrupt and all the companies within it are not investable. I mean, going back to Stuart Investors, their whole line is a sustainable investment and, and has been for quite some time. They pretty much pioneered that to, to great success go for high quality companies with repeatable revenue streams. Uh, and uh, yeah, that it's, it's, it's not one size fits all and you can find good ESG picks within these markets. Brilliant. Okay, I think time is fast approaching lunchtime. So all good podcasters have got to go and uh, get some sustenance. So I will wrap it up there. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Nisha. Thank you, Angus, for another sparkling episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next one. Until then, thank you for listening.